Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. Sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Supplemental, Guinevere, the Queen of Camelot. Stories of King Arthur have abounded for about 1,500 years. The first stories that we can trace seem to have emerged in the 5th and 6th centuries, from England and Wales, of a native Celtic warlord fighting back against foreign invasions of Britain that had been abandoned by the declining Western Roman Empire. Over the coming centuries, Arthur became the archetypal British king, against whom all kings were measured. As we move into the second half of the Middle Ages, these stories handed down through the generations through oral tradition suddenly start to get written down. The person who I think can be considered the sort of Herodotus of Arthurian legend is Geoffrey of Monmouth, a 12th century Welsh monk. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you may remember that Geoffrey is not my favourite guy in the world, mainly because he was considered to have been a flagrant charlatan with the facts, even by the standards of the time. And part of that reputation comes from his chronicle Historia Regum Britanniae, or The History of the Kings of England, which contains, amongst a lot of other fanciful stuff, a detailed account of a British ruler called King Arthur, who was around after the Romans left in the 5th century. After Geoffrey, we have the Norman poet Wace, who largely just straight copied from Geoffrey, but he did introduce a few things, including the notion of the round table, which we know and love today, so kudos to him for that. Then we have the first of the Arthurian romance writers, and someone whom I will be drawing on heavily for this show, Chrétien de Troyes. We know very little about Chrétien, other than the fact that he probably came from Troyes, a city in eastern France in the province of Champagne, and that he lived in the latter part of the 12th century, so around the time of Eleanor of Aquitaine and the other Angevin queens. He provided a large number of works to the Arthurian canon, including most famously Lancelot, the Knight of the Card, which is the first ever appearance of Lancelot in writing, as well as the first story of the adulterous affair between Lancelot and Guinevere. Around the same time as Chrétien, we have the little-known French writer called Marie of France, who wrote an Arthurian poem called L'Enval about a knight who refuses the advances of Queen Guinevere. After Marie, we have a collective of French monks known as the Vulgate Cycle, who are writing in the early 13th century, who had a more Christian perspective, focusing on stories like Arthur's search for the Holy Grail, as well as Arthur's own death and the life of Merlin. And then we get to probably the most influential Arthurian writer of them all, Sir Thomas Mallory. I would guess that pretty much everything that you know, certainly most of what I know about the story of King Arthur, comes from his writing. Mallory was a late 15th century writer of whom we know very little. 
his most famous work is undoubtedly The Death of Arthur, or Le Mort d'Arthur. Part of the reason for its success was that it was written as the printing press was brought to England, and so it proliferated around the country and Europe as a whole. It is quite an episodic work, rather than the rather confusing long narrative used by many of his predecessors. The name is also quite misleading, as it tells a complete story of Arthur, not just of his demise. Okay, so those are our main sources, but in this episode I will be mainly focusing on the stories of Chrétien de Troyes and Mallory, as these are two of the most influential. So, what is the story of Arthur? Well, that is really worth a whole podcast series of its own, and I'm not going to do it justice in one episode to be sure, so I'll give you the quick and dirty broad-stroke version of the standard story of Britain's most famous mythical king. Arthur was born into a divided, war-torn kingdom. He was the illegitimate child of the King Uther Pendragon and his wife, the daughter of the Duke of Cornwall, whom Merlin had helped Uther to trick into sleeping with him. The old king died, though, without legitimate heirs, and so a challenge was devised to decide who was worthy. A magical sword was placed in a stone by Merlin, a sort of mysterious prophetic sorcerer. Whoever could pull the weapon out would be king. One by one, the great nobles and warlords of the kingdom tried and failed to pull it out, until a plucky young squire came up and pulled it out. Despite these humble origins, Arthur quickly proved himself to be a charismatic and successful king, who ruled by a degree of consensus symbolised by the round table, designed so that no one man was seated more prominently than another. He married Guinevere, but commonly little is mentioned of this event. Indeed, there are only really two very common stories told of Arthur's queen, her abduction and eventual rescue, and her affair with Lancelot, both of which I'll be talking about at length later. While Amon Lancelot, he was the king's champion and chief bodyguard, a paragon of knightly virtue. Until his affair with the queen was discovered, he was Arthur's great companion, and his betrayal of the kingdom, as we will see, is used as a metaphor for the decline of Arthur's fortunes. In this time, Arthur also goes on a quest with his knights for the Holy Grail, a quest on which almost everyone dies, and they don't ever really get to see it. It's really a bit of an anticlimax when you get down to it. While Arthur was on this quest, his illegitimate son Mordred steals Arthur's magical sword Excalibur and launches a rebellion against his father. Arthur called in the remainder of his armies and they fight a huge battle called the Battle of Camden, in which both Mordred and Arthur are fatally wounded. Arthur is placed on a boat which sails to Avalon where he is laid to rest. Okay, so that is the commonly told background to our story. Let's talk about Guinevere. Who is she? Well, the first thing to say is that, like all Arthurian characters, her historicity is highly disputed. And by disputed, I mean we are pretty damn sure she didn't exist. Or, to be more accurate, she didn't exist in anything like the way she is portrayed. Why? Well, it's hard enough to find information about queens on our existing sources, let alone dubious ones from the 5th century reported through dubious sources in the 12th century. With that in mind, it is therefore perhaps not surprising that there is disagreement in the medieval Arthurian writers about where she came from. Geoffrey of Monmouth describes her as of being of Roman blood and having been brought up by the Duke of Cornwall. Later writers like Mallory and Chrétien place her as a Breton princess, the daughter of Leodegrance, one of the most trusted companions of Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon. Indeed, he was so trusted that he was given the round table on the death of the king, something that he re-gifted to Arthur on his marriage to his daughter. In this tradition, Guinevere first meets the young King Arthur when he comes to the aid of her father when he is attacked by Riance. The story of their meeting is told through the medium of romantic love. At a feast to celebrate their victory, Arthur claps eyes on the daughter of his ally. She is often described as the greatest beauty in the kingdom, and it seems that he mostly focuses on that, though some stories also focus on her wit and charm. Arthur can't get the princess out of his mind, 
so he consults Merlin, who agrees that marrying would be a good thing for both Arthur and the kingdom. He uses all the arguments that are usually made for a king marrying. A child would be good for the continuity of the kingdom and its security. Guinevere was a woman of noble blood, from good stock, which was a good omen. But he also does a bit of foreshadowing, saying that he could not guarantee that she would be the best choice, only saying that she would have a, quote, profound effect on the kingdom. Arthur, probably forgetting all of this and only focusing on how attractive she was, immediately rushed off and asked for her hand in marriage, which was readily agreed to. And as a wedding gift, as I already said, Leodegrance offered Arthur the round table, around which all the knights who had attended the wedding pledged their allegiance to the king and the new queen. So, if we back away for a second here, this is really a bit of classic royal marriage, one that we are very familiar with from the other episodes of this show. We have a new king, who came to the throne in slightly dodgy circumstances, with enemies all around seeking to marry to secure his legitimacy and produce heirs. He marries the daughter of a very powerful ally, securing his loyalty. His wife was of noble stock, important given the fact that Arthur was technically a bastard, so that helped to balance the ticket out. Now the whole romance thing of course is not typical of the marriages we have seen, but it was often how they were portrayed in the sources. But the other circumstances of the match are highly typical. These writers wanted to present a kingdom that readers and listeners would find familiar, and that much is very obvious so far. Now after this match, Guinevere often disappears from view a bit, much like queens do in the sources unless they produced heirs or did something extraordinary. What I'm going to do then is not go through a potted history of Guinevere's life, but instead focus on the key events that interested our writers, and in so doing, I will relate them to real-life queens that we know and love. So let's first deal with the elephant in the room. Probably the most famous thing that Guinevere ever did was conduct an affair with Lancelot. It is the focus of one of the most famous Arthurian romances, Chrétien de Troyes' The Knight of the Cart, and a major theme of pretty much every Arthurian romance since. The story starts with Lancelot's first appearance at Arthur's court. Lancelot, also known as Lancelot of the Lake, was a knight who had been taught his formidable fighting skills by the Lady of the Lake, after she had taken him under her wing after the destruction of his father's castle. Once he had come of age, she sent Lancelot to Camelot to serve King Arthur. Given that the last thing that the Lady of the Lake had given him was Excalibur, Arthur gratefully welcomed Lancelot, and the young knight quickly proved himself to be the greatest knight in the kingdom. At a tournament thrown to welcome him, he defeated all comers, and as a reward, he was given a gift by the queen, a diamond, one of only nine recovered by Arthur on one of his earliest quests. This tournament, known thereafter as the Diamond Tourney, was held every year, and every year Lancelot won it, so besotted was he by the face of the queen. He won all nine diamonds, but his real objective was to seduce Guinevere. In the intermediate years, Lancelot became the king's closest companion, following him on all of his most famous adventures. But, of course, he was also betraying him, as he and the queen were to start an affair. Now, some stories have Guinevere resisting Lancelot's advances, others have her enticing him away from knightly virtue, but most stories have it that he declared his love for her in a private garden, and she refused him, stating that she could not betray her husband, the king. Things changed, though, when Guinevere was captured by Maliagant. Lancelot gave chase, and in a thrilling bit of chivalric action, slaughtered her captors and returned her to Camelot. This seems to have tipped the scales in Lancelot's favour, and it is after this that their affair began, a secret known only to them. Well, and Mordred, Arthur's nefarious bastard son, who guessed it, but kept it under wraps for a while. It is not known for how long that this affair went on, but it was revealed to Arthur after his return from his grail quest. Arthur was not best pleased, 
and in his fury announced that Guinevere was to be burnt at the stake and that Lancelot was to be banished. But before the Queen could be put to the torch, she was rescued once again by Lancelot. Civil war then ensued between Arthur and Lancelot, with Mordred being put in charge of the kingdom while the king was away. Yet Mordred was a bad egg, and with Arthur away, he declared himself king, forcing Arthur to abandon his quest for brutal revenge to go off and deal with his threat. And, of course, he died in the attempt. This version, of course, differs from the version I said at the beginning of the show, where Mordred seized the throne while Arthur was on his grail quest. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. The story of Lancelot and Guinevere is often held up as the supreme example of courtly love. It is a relationship that is utterly impossible. A married woman, a queen no less, and the king's champion. Courtly love is all about unobtainable love outside of marriage. Indeed, love was seen as impossible within the shackles of marriage. Therefore, Lancelot and Guinevere's illicit affair was considered a purer kind of love than anything that Guinevere could have with her husband, the king. The marriage between Guinevere and Arthur is presented as not being an... Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24 especially happy one. Arthur paid pretty much no attention to his wife, and though this does not excuse what Guinevere did in the eyes of the medieval writers, it is given as a reason why it happened. Like almost all medieval marriages, she had not had a choice in the matter. It was a deal arranged between her father and her future husband. This she has in common with a great deal of royal marriages that we have talked about so far. At the extreme end, we have John and Isabel of Angoulême, and Richard and Berengaria, which were pretty miserable marriages, but we also have marriages clearly made for expediency, where there seems to be little affection, like Henry I's marriages to Matilda of Scotland and Adeliza of Louvain. I think I can only make a case for the two marriages of Edward I, and that of Stephen to Matilda of Boulogne in our period, as being happy ones. Marriages were made for a dynastic, territorial, and financial reasons, and so the happiness of the parties within it was very low down the priority list. The affair between Guinevere and Lancelot is portrayed differently according to which story you read. Mallory, who never portrays women as being anything but awful in his story, has the affair going on for decades. Within the relationship, Guinevere is portrayed as being controlling, jealous, and fickle. Any woman showing interest in Lancelot met the Queen's ire. When Lancelot sleeps with a woman called Elaine, she, in a jealous rage, sends Lancelot away, believing that he would be driven mad with grief for not being in her company. She shouted at him once, calling him a, quote, false recreant knight and a common lecher who lovest and holdest other ladies, and by me thou hast disdain and scorn. Mallory uses the affair between Guinevere and Lancelot as being behind nigh on every evil affecting Camelot. The moral decay it brought on the kingdom is used as a reason behind Arthur's failed quest for the Holy Grail, and for Arthur's eventual death in battle. Guinevere is therefore clearly being linked to the biblical Eve, the cause of Arthur's fall, just as Eve had been the cause of the fall of man. Chrétien de Troyes is more balanced on the subject of the affair. There is no doubt in his account that their relationship was motivated by nothing but love. His story is about Lancelot's rescue of Guinevere from Maliagant, and so the relationship is portrayed as being a classic story of courtly love. You have the brave knight, the brave queen locked in the tower. Indeed, the villain of the piece really is Arthur, who blames the queen for her own capture and the death of the knight sent to protect her. My favourite passage in Knight of the Cart is from their first night of passion. Quote, 
Their sport is so agreeable and sweet, as they kiss and fondle each other, that in truth such a marvellous joy comes over them as was never heard or known. Yet the most choice and delightful satisfaction was precisely that of which our story must not speak. This is no tawdry affair like in Mallory. This is true love winning through. Of course, none of our chroniclers would ever treat a queen having an affair in this way. They would be with Mallory. Sexual transgression by a queen was not just a matter of a betrayal of marriage vows, it was seen as positively dangerous to the security of the kingdom, hence why it was treated like treason. Why? Well, it has a lot to do with babies. As I mentioned in pretty much every episode, the prime imperative of every queen was to produce heirs. No male heirs equals almost certain civil war. See the example of Henry I if you want any evidence of this. English medieval kings were spectacularly bad at handing their thrones off to their eldest sons, as we will soon see in the coming episodes. We've already seen two childless queens, Adeliza of Louvain and Berengaria of Navarre, but they were in famous company, as Guinevere was also childless. To fail to produce a son was often not portrayed as being a fact of misfortune, it was seen as the woman's fault, something of a moral defect. If you could not produce an heir, it was often seen as being because your heart wasn't really in the marriage. If you bring your minds back to Eleanor of Aquitaine's marriage to Louis of France, the fact that she only produced daughters and not sons was seen as being the same as if she had been barren. Women were legally dead as far as the succession went, Empress Matilda excepting of course, and the fact that Eleanor of Aquitaine married Henry II so quickly after her divorce and went on to have many sons with him was seen in some sources as being due to the fact that she had never loved Louis and that she may have been carrying off with Henry already before her divorce. The timeline of course does not bear this out, but it did not stop chroniclers from making accusations. Now of course, we can read too much into this. Christian, for example, may well have portrayed her as being barren purely for narrative reasons, to make her affair with Lancelot less complicated. Indeed, in his story, as in others, there may well have been sons, but they just didn't merit a mention, as they did not affect the story. Let's not forget that the stories of Mallory and Cretian are works of fiction, and so they were not duty-bound to flesh out everything at the expense of the narrative. The fact that she was childless also is down to context for Mallory. He was living during the War to the Roses, a period where dynastic instability was rampant, and thus using Guinevere's childlessness as a reason for the instability of Camelot was a useful way of grounding the story for his audience. The idea of simple behaviour on the part of the Queen causing ruin on the kingdom was not just confined to Eleanor of Aquitaine. Isabel of Angoulême, the wife of King John, was repeatedly accused of sleeping around, with Matthew Paris sensationally claiming that she had bedded one of her brothers. This, of course, in the context of the Angevin Empire collapsing around the feet of the hapless king. While much of the blame for this was put at the feet of John, the behaviour of his wife was definitely seen as a symptom of the moral decay of the kingdom, something that she and Mallory's Guinevere have very much in common. With all this blame floating around her, you would have thought that Guinevere would have been portrayed as being a fairly powerful queen, but actually, that is very far from the truth. We have talked a lot so far in this show about intercession, the use of soft power by a queen to influence a king. The more powerful and persuasive queens, like Matilda of Flanders or Eleanor of Provence, could wield a lot of influence that way, but Guinevere was not one of them. She was very much seen as an ornamental queen, someone to be seen but certainly not heard. In Chrétien de Toile's tale, Guinevere is really seen as being a character caught between two feuding men, Maliagant and Arthur, and then becoming something of a damsel to be saved by another man. Her safety and security is not really seen as being of primary concern. Maleagant wants to use her as leverage against Arthur. Arthur sees attacks on her and her capture as being an attack on him and his honour. 
This is shown in Arthur's response to Maliagan's capture of Guinevere. Quote, So help me God, I would rather become his man than surrender to him the queen. She shall never be given up by me, but rather contested and defended against all who are so foolish as to dare to come in quest of her. Guinevere, here, is portrayed using the same language as Arthur might use to describe a castle, or an important city, or indeed the Holy Grail. She is very much seen as an object, not as a person, much less a wife and queen. And as for Lancelot, well, he seems more concerned, at least initially, about the glory of the whole thing, and not so much about Guinevere herself. It was the act, rather than the prize, that interested him. For Lancelot, we can see this clearly in this quote. Lancelot, quote, would doubtless rather win her in battle than as a gift, for it will thus enhance his fame. It is my opinion that he's seeking her not to receive her peaceably, but because he wishes to win her by force of arms. So it would be wise on thy part to deprive him of the satisfaction of fighting thee. This is borne out during Lancelot's rescue of Guinevere, when he turns and continues to fight even when he has an opportunity to escape, the thirst for glory overcoming him. Now, Cretien did not portray Guinevere as being entirely powerless. He did portray her as being what Jessica Grady calls a internal ambassador, someone who Arthur used on occasion to persuade his nobles to change their minds if he could not do so. Yet these occasions are limited. She was most definitely a pawn, and a pretty weak one at that. In Mallory's account, Guinevere is described as being completely powerless, especially in her early years married to Arthur. She has to get his permission to do as much as leave the castle to go on a ride or attend a tournament. She was treated almost like staff rather than a wife. Now, as we know, one of the most common ways that a queen could both exert power and be useful to her husband is by ruling as regent while he went off to war. This was a particular feature, especially of Anglo-Norman queenship, with the Matildas all being used in this way by their husbands. Perhaps showing the difference between 12th and 15th century queenship, Mallory does not show Guinevere as having that kind of power. When Arthur went off an exhibition abroad, he, quote, resigned the rule of the realm and Guinevere to two of his most powerful nobles, Sir Baldwin and Sir Constantine. Here, Guinevere is not only portrayed as being powerless, but very much a part of Arthur's personal property. The only time that Guinevere really shows any kind of initiative is after Arthur's death. Mordred, after waiting a little while thanks to at least some delicacy, announces that he wanted to wed his dead father's wife. Now, of course, he was not Guinevere's son, just Arthur's, but still. Ew. Guinevere, as one might imagine, was not thrilled at the prospect, and so went to London and took control of the tower and organised men and supplies to defend it and her against her stepson. Now, in leading men against the enemies of the king, this is quite a step up for Guinevere, bringing to mind Matilda of Boulogne's efforts after Stephen had been captured, or Eleanor of Castile's defence of Windsor Castle during the Second Barons' War. This apart, though, Mallory's depiction of a powerless Eleanor, as we will see, very much fits in with the model of queenship that we will be seeing more and more of in the episodes to come. Finally, for this episode, we are going to talk about piety. While queens were required to produce children and something useful as part of a dowry or powerful family, something that they were also expected to be was a model of virtuous piety. Now, of course, Guinevere, being an adulterous cheat, did not exactly make her a poster child for religious virtue, but she was portrayed in other respects as being a good Christian. Mallory sees Guinevere's life after the death of Arthur as being a sort of redemption. 
her affair with Lancelot ended, she defends Arthur's honour by refusing to marry his illegitimate son, and then refuses to remarry anyone, further honouring his memory. By remaining unmarried and thus celibate after her husband's death, she was practising church teaching common at the time that said chastity was more valuable than even sex within marriage. Purity was prized above all, even in widows. She was also shown as having a good moral compass, Lancelot accepted. There is an occasion when a knight asks her how he should show penance for accidentally killing a woman. She advised him to seek penance from the Pope, but the important thing is that the knight goes to her, not a priest, showing that Mallory saw her as being analogous to a religious figure. In this, she is replicating quite a few very pious queens, especially Matilda of Scotland, who of course famously rebuked her brother David after he expressed his disgust at her washing the feet of lepers. When Guinevere finally came to die, she retired to a convent, quote, living in fasting prayers and alms deeds. The practice of retiring to a convent is very common indeed with the queens who survived their husbands, with Anna of Aquitaine, Berengar of Navarre, and Margaret of France being just three examples that we have already seen. So, that is Guinevere, according to Mallory and Chrétien de Troyes. She may well have been a fictional queen, but writers love to project their own experiences, observations, and prejudices onto their characters, and so as we have seen, the Queen of Camelot is a very interesting way of examining what writers from opposite ends of our story wanted and feared from their queens. Next time, we will go back to reality and Isabella of France, one of England's most controversial queens. A child bride who would do one better than Anna of Aquitaine and actually overthrow her husband. (laughs) 